Turn with me in your scriptures to the book of Genesis. Today we are in Genesis chapter 10. Uh, we're going to begin in verse 1. We'll read through um, chapter 11, verse 9. Um, we are going to cover what is called the table of nations in Genesis chapter 10. And this is one of those chapters that would probably be considered the boring bits that we talked about several weeks ago. But at the same time, it's one of those chapters that gets us tongue-tied as we read through it because these are uh, Semitic words. These are Middle Eastern words, ancient Near Eastern words that we're not familiar with oftentimes. Men have translated these into, or transliterated these into English for us, and we do the best we can. Um, I've read these several times this week, so I'll do maybe better than some other people that maybe have not read them as many times, but... As you read them on your own, maybe not today listening to me, but later on, just feel free to do the best you can and keep going. Um, but today we will pick up the, the, the account of the nations and the earth in Genesis chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. This is the account of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, Noah's sons who themselves had sons after the flood. The Japhethites, the sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tiras. The sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, Riphath, and Togarma. The sons of Javan, Elisha, Tarshish, the Katim, and the Rodanim. From these, the maritime people spread out into the territories by their clans within their nations, each with its own language. The sons of Ham, Cush, Mizraim, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush, Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Ra'amah, and Sabteca. The sons of Ra'amah, Sheba, and Dedan. Cush was the father of Nimrod, who grew to be a mighty warrior on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. That is why it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The first centers of his kingdom were Babylon, Erech, Akkad, and Kalna in Shinar. From that land he went to Assyria where he built Nineveh, Rehoboth, Ir, Kala, and Resen, which is between Nineveh and Kala. That is the great city. Mizraim was the father of the Luddites, Anamites, Lechabites, Naphtahites, Pathrasites, Kazlahites, from whom the Philistines came, and the Kaphtorites. Canaan was the father of Sidon, his firstborn, and of the Hittites, Jebusites, Amorites, Girgashites, Hivites, Archites, Sinites, Arvadites, Zemorites, and Hamathites. Later, the Canaanite clans scattered, and the borders of Canaan reached from Sidon toward Gerar, as far as Gaza, and then toward Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, Zeboim, as far as Lasha. These are the sons of Ham by their clans and languages and their territories and nations. The Semites. The sons were also born to Shem, whose older brother was Japheth. Shem was the ancestor of all the sons of Eber. The sons of Shem. Elam, Asher, Arphaxad, Lud, and Aram. The sons of Aram, Uz, Hul, Gether, and Meshech. Arphaxad was the father of Shelah, and Shelah the father of Eber. The two sons were born to Eber. One was named Peleg, because in his time the earth was divided. His brother was named Joktan. 
Joktam was the father of Almadad, Shelaf, Hezarmaveth, Jera, Hadaram, Uzal, Dikla, Obal, Abimael, Sheba, Ophir, Havilah, and Jobab. All these were the sons of Joktam. The region where they lived stretched from Mesha towards Sephar in the eastern hill country. These are the sons of Shem by their clans and languages and their territories and nations. These are the clans of Noah's sons according to their lines of descent within their nations. From these, the nations spread out over the earth after the flood. Chapter 11. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As men moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower that men were building. The Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. That is why it is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. Let us pray. Our gracious and sovereign God, we ask that you be with us today. Help us to see how you are sovereign over the nations and sovereign over civilization. And in that sovereignty, know that we may do the work you have for us with comfort and with strength. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We talked a little bit last week as we looked at Noah after the flood, as we looked at his sons and and how they reacted to Noah. We learned that there are certain things that we are called to do that we cannot do. We are called to bring about God's glory upon this earth, and because of our sins, we cannot, and somebody has to step in. But there are things which we are called to do, which God has given us the tools to do, but sometimes we refuse to do them. As our children grow up, we give them more and more responsibilities, and we ask them to do things, and sometimes uh, when we ask them to do things, they refuse, they disobey. And as they are younger and they, we give them more tools to obey as they grow, um, we expect them to do those things, and sometimes we don't step in. Today we are going to see an episode where God did step in to what he told his people to do, and in stepping in, we're going to see his sovereignty. And in stepping in, we're going to see that sovereignty over the nations and that sovereignty over civilization. First, God's sovereignty over the nations. In Acts 17, verses 16 through 34, Paul is talking to a group of philosophers in the Greek city of Athens. He's describing God's work in the world. And in verses 26 and 27 of Acts 17, he says this, From one man God made every nation of men, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each of us. Genesis 10 is a long list of names and nations, 70 in all, that describe the 
excuse me, describe the process of these nations growing from one man, Noah, and his sons, growing to fill the whole earth. The descendants of, of the geography of this, I won't go into specifics for each name and nation listed here, but if you could picture a map of the world, think of Japheth and his descendants as kind of reaching from Greece up through Turkey and then over to what I called a few weeks ago the stands. You know, Kyrgyzstan and Uzbekistan and, and Tajikistan and all those former Soviet republics that are up there in kind of the, uh, the far Middle East, if you will. We look at the sons of Shem as they are filling that area between the Tiger and Euphrates where we know Iran and Iraq are today. And the descendants of Ham are filling northern Africa on down into Sudan and Ethiopia. And then the area of Palestine um, is where the descendants of Ham are situated. And so we see the descendants of Noah filling the entire known earth of the time of, of Moses writing this book. But we also see that not only is the known earth, the known world filled, but we see that God is sovereign in this. God is sovereign in directing the filling of the earth. The first way we see this is in the giving of sons to Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The language is translated for us here in chapter 10, verse 1. It says, this is the account of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, Noah's sons who themselves had sons, after the flood. The sense of this translation is that it's not just that they had sons, but that God acted in giving them sons. They are not the primary actors in this. God is. God has given them sons so that they could fill the earth. God grows the nations. God grows the people that turn into nations. God gives children so that the world may be filled. We also see this in the growth of Nimrod in the midst of the Holy Seed. After the flood, who's left? The seed of Cain or the seed of Seth? It's the line of Seth that is left because Noah was a, direct, or a descendant of Seth and all the line of Cain is wiped out in the flood. And so the, the dichotomy between those two lines in the first five or six chapters of the book of Genesis is the dichotomy between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. But what comes from the seed of the woman? Nimrod. Now, Nimrod is here described as a mighty warrior. And we've seen this language once before in Genesis chapter six, verse four, when the sons of God took for themselves wives and became mighty warriors. Another translation for that word mighty warrior is tyrant. Elsewhere in the Old Testament, that is described as a tyrant, a, a vicious, wicked ruler who abuses his people. And so Nimrod here can be seen as a tyrannical ruler, not just a mighty hunter, but a, a man who has made his reputation hunting, has grown his kingdom and his empire upon the backs of slaves and people whom he has abused. And that is one of the nations, that is one of the children that God has given to the sons of Noah. And so we see God's sovereignty and even raising up wicked rulers amidst the holy seed. Paul takes this idea of the sovereignty of God and government in Romans chapter 13, and he says that all government demands the respect 
and the prayers of God's people because God has raised up all governments. God is still sovereign over governments and over nations. And finally, we see God's sovereignty over the nations, not just in his giving of sons to Shem, Ham, and Japheth, not just in the growth of Nimrod, but also in the choosing of one line over others. In chapter 9, we see that God is the God of Shem. We have seen that Shem is chosen to be blessed by God, to be this chosen seed, if you will, and we begin to see this narrow down. In verse 21 of chapter 10, we see that uh, where to go sons were also born to Shem whose older brother was Japheth so we see Shem as the younger son is chosen over the older son and Shem was the ancestor of all the sons of ever do you know what word in the scriptures comes from the root for the word ever it's Hebrew it's the root in the original language for the word Hebrew It is the root for the name given to the people of God, for the language that the people of God speak. And so we see a choosing here because Eber is not a direct descendant of Shem, but he is given prominence. He is given choosing over the other descendants. And even within Eber's descendants, we see two sons, Peleg and Joktam. And we're given the descendants of Joktam here, but not the descendants of Peleg will be given the descendants of Peleg after the curse of Babel. Moses is showing here that the descendants of Joktam come under the curse, but not Peleg. Do you know why? Do you know who the descendant of Peleg was? Abraham. You know who the ultimate descendant of Abraham was? Jesus, our Lord and Savior. So God is showing his sovereignty in the nations by selecting Shem's line, Within Shem's line, selecting Eber. Within Eber's line, selecting Peleg. And ultimately selecting Abraham as the, the, the line from which the Messiah will come. And so God is sovereign over all the nations. He directs the growth of the nations to bring about his plan for humanity. When we looked at the genealogy in Genesis chapter 5, remember we talked about sometimes There's boredom in reading the genealogies. It's just unpronounceable name after unpronounceable name who were born, had children and died. They were born, they had children and died over and over again. But one of the things we talked about in that is that it shows us that God directs history to bring about his salvation. And so we see this even larger as we consider this table of nations. The names that are through here are a mix of of personal names and national names. I don't know, did you hear some of the names echoed in Acts chapter 2 when we read from that earlier? That list of nations that were there, several of those names show up within this list here in Genesis chapter 10. We see God's sovereignty over the nations. But we also see God's sovereignty over civilization. Within the nations are cities and states and cultures and this thing that we call civilization. And God is sovereign over that. And for us to see God's sovereignty over civilization, we must understand the sin of the citizens of Babel. Now, Babel is one of those cities that was listed by Nimrod, that was listed as being established by Nimrod. And in chapter 10, it is situated in the land of Babylon. In fact, This is an old city-state that grows up. Ultimately, Nebuchadnezzar comes from Babylon. 
And it was the city that was established and is judged by God by the confusing of language. But what was their sin? Some people have said that it was just the the building of a city that was the sin. And and that's not true because God does not necessarily against the establishment of cities. In fact, he commands a city to bear his name and to bear his presence later on in the Old Testament with the establishment of Jerusalem as the capital of his kingdom. But the sin of Babel is threefold. First, the citizens of Babel refuse to fill the earth. After Noah and his sons leave the ark, they are reminded of the blessing upon them as the image of God, and they are commanded once again to fill the earth. What do the residents of Babel say in verse 4? It says, Come, let us build ourselves a city, going to the second half, so that we may not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. They've been told to fill the earth, and what do they do? They are establishing themselves in one geographic place. They are They are breaking God's command to fill the earth. Secondly, the citizens of Babel seek significance for themselves apart from the designation of the image of God. They said, come, let us build ourselves a city so that we may make a name for ourselves. They are looking for respect. They are looking for dignity. They are looking for um, meaning in the technology of building a city. We're told in in chapters uh, two and three, or verses two and three, the technology that they used to build this city and to build this tower. They made bricks. They baked them thoroughly so they were hard, and they stacked bricks on top of stone. They found meaning in what they could do on their own. They warped the good things that God had given them, architectural technology, and they used that to find meaning and to find purpose in their life apart from God. And the third thing they did was they they sought to cross the boundaries of God's dwelling place. The tower was more than likely an an edifice, a building called a ziggurat. Now, a ziggurat is very much like a, a pyramid in Egypt. It would probably be more like the pyramids that you see in Mexico, the the Aztec pyramids that they're kind of stepped on their way up. They're not a, a, a flat sided pyramid. Um, but they would have steps up to the top, and on the top would be this, this room, this building, that would have been painted with a blue enamel uh, so that it kind of blended in with the sky to show that the ziggurat lifts humans up to the dwelling place of God. It was a place where supposedly God revealed his will to the priests and to the kings. It is a place where humans left the earth and ascended to the realm of the gods. In Genesis 3, we saw that Adam and Eve sinned by transgressing the boundaries of God's wisdom. God says, I know what it is to be right and wrong. Don't transgress ethical knowledge. But they did that. They transgressed the boundaries of God's wisdom. In Genesis 6, we saw that the sons of God and the daughters of man um, transgressed the boundaries of God's definition of marriage by violently taking and kidnapping women for themselves to marry. And here we see that sin is the seeking to transgress where God lives, to enter God's dwelling place even though we cannot, even though we have been kicked out of Eden, seeking to enter his dwelling place on our own, by our own power, in our own might. The sad thing for us to think of here is that for every boundary that God has placed for us, We'll try to cross it. 
As humans, every boundary that God puts there and says, hey, look, if you cross this boundary, you are bringing condemnation, you are bringing danger upon themselves. What is the first thing we're going to do? Don't touch the stove. It's hot. What's the first thing the kid does? Don't grab the cookie off the counter. I'm saving it for later. What do we do? We grab the cookie off the counter. We grab the burner on the stove. We burn ourselves. We bring judgment upon ourselves because every boundary that is there, we will seek to transgress. And in the midst of this, God shows his sovereignty over civilization. The first way God shows his sovereignty over civilization is ironic and funny. They have built a tower that reaches to the heavens. What's the first thing God does? He descends. You see the humor there? Do you see the irony? Man in his might and his wisdom has built this building that gives him access to God. That brings him into the presence of God. God has to leave somewhere else and go to that place for him to be there in that place. They thought they have reached God. They're still miles and miles away from him. And so God is still above and transcendent over humanity. Secondly, he shows his sovereignty by changing the name of the city. Babel in ancient Babylonians means the gate of the gods. God says, no, Babel means confusion. If you name something, it shows authority that you have over it. We, we talk about Columbus coming to the new world. And we talk about the, the nations that followed him naming the new world. It showed that they had some type of control over and authority over that new world. God names the city. And then God shows his sovereignty by judging the sin of these people. And the judgment is a confusion of language. God knows that the constant assaults on his boundaries will not be outside the grasp of humanity if they work together. We can always do so much more when we work together than when we work apart, can't we? When we want to do something good, if we want to build a house, if I decide to go buy a piece of property and build a house and I decide to do it myself, you should question my sanity first off. But secondly, it's going to take me a long, long time to do that, even if I work eight hours a day, seven days a week. But if we all join together, we can we can build a higher quality, we can build it quicker, we can build a much prettier house than I can do alone. But if I want to engage in sin, I can do a much better job of that as a group as well. We can, we can get closer, we can, we can do worse and more depraved in transgressing those boundaries that God has given us if we work together. And that's what God is saying here. He says, you know what, if they work together they will be as depraved and more depraved than they are on their own. And so God confuses their language and separates them. But this judgment is also a grace. All the nations, Paul, Paul tells the Athenians in Acts uh, 17, he says, all the nations grew so that they might search for God, so that they might find salvation. If you're in a foreign country and you don't understand the language, it's a pretty helpless place to be, isn't it? And you're looking for help. If you're in a world that continually seeks to transgress God's boundaries, but you can't work together, 
You can't work together to get closer to God. You can't get work together to get more to get more wisdom like God. Where are you going to seek the closeness to God and the wisdom of God? You're going to seek it in God. So the confusion of language should also drive us to seek God more. And the good news is that in the work of Christ, we see the beginning of the reversal. And we considered this as we look at Acts chapter two today. Now, notice there that God does not completely unconfuse the language, but he allows each person to hear the good news of redemption in their own language. And he gives his own table of nations there that cover the known world as well. People from all of the known world of Paul's time of of Peter's time heard the gospel in their own language. And we look forward to the day when Jesus returns and once and for all, the languages are unconfused. We see God's sovereignty over the nations and we see God's sovereignty over civilization. The people of Babel took technology that they had been given, technology that they had been given by God to build cities, to make building materials, to do all those things. And they abused it for their own purpose, for their own reputation, for their own name, for their own meaning. We do the same thing today. We take things like medical technology that are good, that bring healing, that bring restoration from diseases, horrific diseases that would have killed us 100 years ago. And we take that and we use it to abort babies. We take the good technology of the Internet that is great for getting information from point A to point B quickly. In Paul's time, in the time of Babel, if I wanted to send a note to somebody, I would either have to carry it personally myself or give it to somebody else who would carry it. If I want to send a note to somebody in Spain today, I go sit down at my computer and hit send and about a second later, it's right there in their inbox. We can do wonderful things with the Internet, but what do we do with it? We're lazy. We're indolent. We go on Facebook and YouTube and spend all day there doing absolutely nothing but looking at the lives of other people being jealous. Or we use the Internet for pornography. Every good thing that God gives us, we will abuse. And unfortunately, the world outside of Christ will use those good things to abuse the people of God. To abuse and to try to stop the work of the people of God. But God is sovereign over the nations. The good rulers and the bad rulers, God is sovereign over. The, the, the wise rulers and the foolish rulers, God is sovereign over. And God is sovereign over civilization as well. All that technology that we have, all that technology that we abuse, all that technology that oftentimes is used to abuse the people of God is under God's sovereign control as well. And so we can be about our work with confidence and strength. The call to fill the earth with children of God is still on us today. It is a spiritual work instead of a physical work, although we can bring about children of God through physical means as well. There's a spiritual dimension to it in sharing the gospel, because even if we bring out physical children of God until they accept the gospel, they are not true children of God. We are called to fill the earth with the gospel. We are called to fill the earth with God's glory in the presentation of the forgiveness that is offered through the free grace of the cross. And what do we do with that glorious message? We don't build a ziggurat. 
We build a church. And then we sit in it and we close the doors. Not a bad thing to build a church, don't get me wrong. It's not a bad thing to have a nice, beautiful building with beautiful windows and a beautiful piece of property. But when we close the gates and say, okay, God, we're here for you and just be with us. We refuse to scatter. We refuse to fill. God judges his church as well. Sometimes we gather and we close the doors and we sit on our laurels because of fear of the world. I get that. I confessed in Sunday school today that evangelism scares me. Sharing the good news of God to a one-on-one kind of semi-stranger outside of these walls scares me. But God's sovereign over that situation. God's sovereign over the filling of the earth. God is sovereign over the nations, no matter how hostile they are to that gospel. And God is sovereign over culture and civilization, no matter how hostile it is as well. And so we can fulfill whatever calling God has given to us, and we can do that with confidence and strength. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Holy Father, how good it is to know that you are sovereign, how good it is to know that your sovereignty extends to the nations, your sovereignty extends to our culture, your sovereignty extends to every facet of life. Help us to rest in your sovereignty. Help us to rest in your goodness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.